This week's Norfolk Heritage Centre podcast episode covers the fascinating history of Norwich's Rosary Road Cemetery. Listen to Nick Williams of Thorpe History Group give an enlightening talk on one of Norwich's hidden treasures. Well, good evening everybody. Um, I'm going to talk for relatively short period about the Rosary and then there'll be an opportunity for questions. My name's Nick Williams, I'm involved in the Thorpe History Group and we put on a number of things in the area, talks, walks and so on and so forth. First of all, can I start by asking, are people familiar with the Rosary? Anybody not know anything about it or where it is? I know where it is. Okay. Well, hopefully at the end of the talk you'll be um, enthused enough to pop down and have a look. The Rosary's open every day throughout the year and just closes at dusk. There are some guidance boards when you go down there and there are a number of um, posts with information on them so when you wander around you're not completely in the dark, there is information to help you there. What I'm going to do is just talk about the background of the Rosary then I'll talk about some of the people who are buried at the Rosary whose names will probably be familiar to people if you've been in the area a long time. The Rosary itself is unique in that it's the first Christian non-denominational cemetery in the country and it opened in the autumn of 1821. It offered a place of burial to everybody although to be fair it wasn't for the poor because you had to pay. You paid for the grave, you paid for the service, if you wanted a vault you paid for that. You get the picture don't you? (laughs) It was laid out on a five acre site which was outside the city centre and it was known as the Rosary Market Garden and at the time of course um, It was well outside the built-up area of the city, and I'll come on to that a little while later. It was founded by a man called Thomas Drummond, who was a dissenting clergyman, and he was the driving force behind the cemetery until his death in 1852. Why would you invest your money in a new cemetery in 1821? I'm sure there are lots of other reasons you could um, buy into spending a lot of money. I think the first reason was that The population of the city was increasing. In 1801, the population of Norwich was about 37,000. It increased throughout the 19th century, and by the 1901 census, it had almost tripled. So most of that growth was within the existing city walls, the existing houses were subdivided, and the larger houses had um, tenements and what were basically slums built behind them in the gardens. And until the middle of the 19th century, there's very little expansion of Norwich until they started building at the new Pyham suburb and the new Lakenham suburb. The second reason that a Drummondthor cemetery would be useful um, is that living conditions for many in the 19th century were quite squalid. Drinking water for many people, if it didn't come from the river, which was also used as a drain, I'll come on to that, <laughs> came from the parish pump and parish, some of the parish pumps were adjacent to the churchyards. And one of the city's earlier medical officers of health commented that the water from one pump was almost pure essence of churchyard. And although, some, although somebody, you're not drinking water there, are you? <laughs> <laughs> although somebody pointed out that it was very sparkly, he said, well, <laughs> He said that's probably the nitrates from the decayed human matter. Sanitation was poor. Some of the yards, particularly in the areas like Hyam and Bothorpe, only had one privy. Or if they didn't have a privy at all, the night soil was collected 
and, dis and disposed of to the, um, the gardens in the city. And as late as 1893, it was claimed there were thousands of houses in Norwich without a water closet. Waterborne diseases were common and spread rapidly, and there were at least three outbreaks of cholera in the city, with the last one in 1848. And even as late as 1878, there were 98 deaths from typhoid. All these factors contributed to an increase in the number of people to be buried, and the city's churchyards were more or less full to overflowing. When the diarist John Evelyn came to Norwich in 1671, he commented that most of the churchyards were filled up with earth, or rather the congestion of dead bodies one upon another to the very top of the walls, so as the churches seemed to be built in pits. If you walk around the city now, have a look at places like St Stephen's, St John Market, and ask yourself, why is the level of the churchyard about four feet higher than the road? It's the accumulation of human remains. So the churchyards were full, and even as late as the 1850s, somebody who was visiting Norwich said that sometimes when you walk through the churchyard, you would disturb human remains. So there's a real problem. Um, the third reason, and I think this is the reason why Thomas Drummond decided finally to invest his wife's money, and I'll come on to that later, <laughs> in setting up a churchyard, was that there were restrictions on dissenters like Drummond. Drummond was a Unitarian. He was a Christian, but a Unitarian. But there were restrictions. You couldn't attend Oxford or Cambridge University. You couldn't be a member of Parliament, and there were other restrictions on them. And one of the restrictions was that you couldn't be buried in a Church of England churchyard without having a Church of England burial service. So in places like Norwich and Nottingham and Manchester, where dissenters were strong and increasingly influential, they set up their own cemeteries so they could be buried with the service of their choice or, if they wanted, no service whatsoever. Um, there were, at the time, other cemeteries in Norwich. So if you belonged to the Octagon in Colgate, or if you remember of the old meeting house in Colgate, that they both had four cemeteries. The Quakers had a, a cemetery in Gildencroft, and it's still there now, and you can walk around and have a look. And that's where many of the, the, um, the Gurney family are buried. There were a number of Jewish burial grounds. There was one at the top of Mariner's Lane, but that's now long gone. And later, there was a new one opened in Gildencroft, I think it opened in 1813, but by <coughs> the 1850s it had closed. You can still see it if you walk along the Inner Link Road opposite the old station office building. It's a brick wall. Look over there, and that's the Jewish burial ground. It's usually locked up, so you can't get in. But I, the rosary was really Thomas Drummond's personal crusade. He'd experienced at first hand the prejudice some of his colleagues um, had suffered. In 1808 in Ipswich, when he was a minister there, a child called Harriet Dunnan, who was dangerously ill, was baptised by Drummond. But when the child subsequently died, the parish clerk in the Church of England uh, church there forbade the, 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 the burial of the child in the churchyard when he discovered that Drummond had baptised the child. This, of course, caused enormous distress to the child's parents, and the child had to be buried without a religious service at all. We now come on to the rosary. Um, Drummond was quite canny, really, because I don't think he'd have been able to do it without a fortunate request. His wife was left over £3,000. And in 1816, 1817, that was a lot of money. But, of course, the disadvantage was that married women didn't have property rights. 
I don't think they had property rights until the 1870s or the 1880s. So the bequest became Drummond's. And he wisely or foolishly decided that he would use it to buy some land in Thorpe, lay it out, and he laid it out with shrubs. And because it's on a hillside site, he terraced it, he put in trees, um, shrubs, laid it out with paths to make it as attractive as possible to try and sell it to people who he wanted to bury their loved ones there. He built a small chapel by the entrance, and in the autumn of 1821, he opened it. <coughs> he was lucky in a way because each burial ground had to be licensed by the bishop. And in the current bishop of Norwich, Bishop Bathurst, was very sympathetic to liberal causes. So he agreed that the cemetery could be unconsecrated, meaning that anybody could be buried there. They didn't have to be a Christian. The first burial was really quite a sad occasion, and it was of Drummond's wife, Anne. <coughs> Bit of competition. Um, Anne had died two years before in 1819, and been buried in the burial ground of the Octagon, where both she and her husband Thomas worshipped. When they opened the rosary, he exhumed her body and took it with him and buried her at the rosary. And if you go down there, she's buried right in the centre of the lower section under a large yew tree. And although it's a bit ghoulish, I like to think that Drummond was demonstrating his commitment to the rosary by entrusting it with his wife's body. He then lived on the, on the, at the rosary for a short period. He also um, installed large urns to commemorate both his father and mother. His father was a wig maker in Go Lane and his in-laws. His in-law was a minister in Ipswich. It wasn't particularly successful, I'm afraid, in the early years. The first year only saw two burials. So he got all this area landscaped, two burials in a year. No doubt he sat in his house looking out of the window hoping someone had died. <laughs> <laughs> The second year there were only three burials, but later on it picked up a little bit and by the 1830s it was starting to be used, it was more and more accepted. There was some reluctance to use the new cemetery, it was relatively remote. You know, you know where it is don't you, the junction of um, Thorpe Road and Rosary Road and of course in 1819-1820 that part of the city hadn't yet been um, developed. It was the other side of um, the Foundry Bridge, which had only been there since about 1812. So it was remote, there were no houses, and also it's new and unfamiliar. People were used to burying their loved ones in churchyards, in the parish where they lived. So it was a bit like burying your loved one in a field, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, but the real fear, I think, was the fear of body snatchers. And it was a real fear in the 1820s. What happened was that the corpses were immediately after burial, somebody would sneak into the churchyard, they would remove the body, and as long as they only removed the body and didn't take the shroud, it was treated as a misdemeanor, not a felony. They would then, because the body was still soft or rigor mortis had passed on, they would put it into a box, and the box was described to me as being like a, a milliner's box. They would then take the box to the, one of the pubs in Norwich, it would then be sent by coach to London for the schools of dissection. There were many instances of this in Norwich and particularly in Yarmouth, but there was a case in Norwich in February 1823 of three men who turned up and stayed at a pub in the city 
and used to go out a lot at night, and they weren't going to the nightclubs. They were, go they were going around the churchyards and collecting bodies, packing them in boxes and dropping them off at the pub to be sent on to London. Somebody got a little bit suspicious and opened one of the boxes, and they probably wish they didn't. <laughs> and of course, they ended up in court. But the fear of body snatching more or less disappeared by 1832 when the Anatomy Act was passed. This permitted unclaimed bodies, such as those who died without um, descendants or those who died in workhouses, to be no donated for dissection. As I said earlier, by the 1830s, uh, if it's the right term to use, business had picked up a bit of the rosary, there were more and more burials. And by 1851, I think it was largely accepted that if you were a Baptist, a Unitarian, or a Congregationist, it, the rosary was the place where you would be buried if you could afford it. And, for example, Barnabas Lehman, who was the mayor in 1813 and 1818, was buried there in 1835. And he was the sort of person that um, Drummond was looking for to use his cemetery. There was a particularly sad case in 1854 which illustrated what was going on in the city and why the rosary was being used. In the August of that year, there was an outbreak of cholera which started off in the Barrack Street area, known as Poxville, one of the poorest parts of the city. And it affected particularly badly a family of five. Yeah. A chap called William Rowe, who was the schoolmaster there, and his daughter and his two sons. On the Wednesday of the week of August the 30th, his daughter Matilda was taken ill and died within a few hours. His son was taken, and his son Henry was taken ill the same day and died the following day. And his younger son William, sorry, his younger son Herbert, although he'd been sent away to protect him from the cholera, also contracted it and died a day later. So on the Friday, poor old William, the father, had the dreadful task of burying all three of his children. And no sooner had he come home that he succumbed to cholera and was buried on the following day. And I think that illustrates the sort of thing that could happen in 19th century Norwich with poor sanitation and the sort of some of the people who used the rosary. By the time we get to 1900, about 10,000 people had been buried in the lower section of the rosary. And that's a section which is about, about five, five acres. And they'd started moving steadily up the hill towards the newer part which fronts onto Telegraph Lane. Although that does seem like a lot, if you contrast it to some of the larger London cemeteries, for example, Tower Hamlets in the period from 1841 to 1889 had over 240,000 burials. But I know it's serving a huge area and a lot of them would have been common graves. Whereas at the Rosary, I'm not aware that there are any common graves. <coughs> some, some of the funerals at the time were quite grand occasions. Although these people being buried there were usually mod quite modest people. They didn't like a show. Some of the funerals were quite grand. And none more so than that of Jeremiah James Coleman in 1898. Mm -hmm. Coleman, as you know, was the driving force behind Coleman's of uh, Caro, sadly in the news again with its future under threat. He moved the business from Stoke Holy Cross to Caro in the 1850s, and there they made um, uh, mustard, starch, washing blue. And you know what they say about, Caro, uh, about Coleman's, about how they made their money, don't you? Yeah, that's it, thank you. It's the bus that they left people leaving on the plate. <laughs> Um, 
Coleman died at the family home at Corton near Lowestoft and his body was then brought, by Norwich, brought to Norwich by train. It was carried in an open hearse up Prince of Wales Road to the Congregational Church in Princess Street. It's now the Princess Street United Reformed Church. After the service, the cortege went back down Prince of Wales Road to the Rosary. All the shops on the route were closed. The blinds were down as a mark of respect to Coleman and the carriages were followed by about 1,200 people from the Carrow Works because at the time, 1898, Coleman's was the biggest employer in the city and there were about 2,500 people working at uh, Carrow. At the Rosary there were even more people and much of the cemetery had to be roped off and uh, some of the plots guarded by police to make sure they weren't damaged. And at the graveside they had the Carrow Works Band which played suitable music. If you go to the Rosary, the thing that strikes you, particularly if you've been to places like Highgate or some of the grander London cemeteries, is the lack of grand mausoleums. There's only one mausoleum in the Rosary because I think a lot of the people who were buried there, people like the Colemans, the Boardmans, George White and the others, they were reticent, they were not showy people. So there isn't, I've got a lot to, to see, there are some interesting monuments, that, but they're not fancy. There is one mausoleum at the Rosary, which stands out like a sore thumb, and that's the mausoleum of Emmanuel Cooper. And if you've been there, you've probably noticed it, have you, with the doorways? Yeah. And Cooper was a, an eye specialist, and at the time of his death in 1875, I think it was, he was apparently the oldest practicing doctor in the city, and an eye specialist. Think about that. Would you want to go to some? <laughs> Nevertheless, he lived in a house adjacent to the Erpingham Gate of the cathedral. You know where the monument to Edith Cavill is? Well, before that was there, his house was there. Once he died, the house was uh, reclaimed by the council and demolished and the green put in place. He built the mausoleum before he died. And there's a well-attested story that says that having built the mausoleum, and if you've been there, you'll know that it faces across the River Valley, he would sit in the entrance on a Sunday afternoon smoking his pipe. No doubt, <laughs> no doubt contemplating the view because the trees wouldn't have been as uh, um, mature as they are now. No doubt thinking, well, I'm going to be here for quite a long time when I go in there. Um, for, unfortunately, Drummond went bankrupt in about, I think, 1842. And the management of the rosary was handed over to a group of trustees. They're all friends of... Uh, Drummond, so he managed to retain control of it. But what they did was they employed a superintendent to run the cemetery. Usually the superintendent was an ex-policeman because he had to uh, manage the burials, he had to uh, control the staff, but not everything went according to plan. And one superintendent in particular had to be reprimanded by the trustees because he turned up for a funeral um, drunk. So it did always go very smoothly. Drummond died in 1852 and the trustees ran the cemetery until about 1954 when it became too much of a burden. They didn't have the funds to um, maintain it because although people paid to be buried there and sometimes um, left money with the trust to do maintenance, a lot of people didn't. So it ended up with them selling the graves and not having the funds to maintain the cemetery. You know, look after the graves, cut the grass and all that sort of thing. Since then it's been managed by the City Council and uh, they continue to run it. 
A little bit about the cost of a burial. In the 1840s, if you wanted to buy a single um, grave, it would have cost you two guineas. And a single grave is, well, a little taller than me, um, but you could get three people in it, like you can now, one on top of the other. So you could save a bit of money there. If you wanted a family plot, that would have been five guineas, and that would have been about eight foot square. If you wanted a brick-built vault, and what happened at the Rotary quite a lot is that people would have a brick-built vault, but they wouldn't have anything on top, just a monument. And then each time a family member died, they had space in the vault to put them in. So that was, you're, you're getting a, a good deal there. Um, each interment costs 15 shillings, and if you use Thomas Drummond to officiate, that would be a further five shillings. If you wanted to use somebody else from outside, another clergyman, that would only cost you two and sixpence. And if you wanted to use the chapel, that would be another two and sixpence. So you could see that, <coughs> excuse me, it wasn't for poor people. You did have, have some money to be buried there, even in the 1840s. By the end of the 19th century, the rosary was starting to fill up. There were 10,000 in the lower part. So the trustees bought some land to the north of the cemetery. And by the 1920s, they were starting burials there now. At the moment, the cemetery is getting pretty full. Um, you can't now buy a plot in advance. Uh, but of course, there's one certain way that you can secure a plot at the rosary. Do you know what that is? You have to be dead. <laughs> Sorry, I, uh, I, I couldn't resist that. Um, at one point, the trustees did consider building a crematorium at the rosary in the early 1900s, but once they looked into it, they found that the cost of coal and the amount of coal needed to cremate a body was just prohibitive, so they abandoned that. Um, currently, there's over 20,000 people buried in the rosary and the upper and lower parts. What I'll do now is just run through some of the people that are buried there that you may be interested in. Some of the, you will know Tesco Metro on Guildhall Hill. <coughs> well, do you know what it was before it was Tesco Metro? Yes, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it, yes, it was originally Chamberlain's department store from about 18... 15 onwards, uh, Cha the Chamberlain family built their department store down the whole side of, um, is that Jail Hall or Guildhall Hill? Yeah. I never remember which it is. Yeah. Um, it was, at one time it was such a well-known department store that they advertised it as being one of the three C's of Norwich, the castle, the cathedral and Chamberlain's. It was very, very grand. They had a doorman and the main door was very roughly where the current door is to Tesco's. Uh, he would greet people, you'd be handed over to a floor walker, he would take you to the department. Behind the counter would be all these little wooden uh, drawers which would have the various bits and pieces in. They would be all brought out for you to look at. And once you decided on what you wanted, that would be packed up. You could either take it with you or it would be delivered to your home. They trained the staff quite carefully. It was only after about three years training that um, people were allowed to serve the the general public. A lot of the staff were young women who came in to live above the shop. If you walk down Dove Street and look up to your left, that's where the um, staff accommodation was. And it was fairly typical. People like um, Curl Brothers, Buntings, all had their own staff accommodation. They, provide, they would provide a cook, 
um, a manager because a lot of the, their staff were young unmarried teenage girls coming into work in Norwich so they were being entrusted with them by their parents and they lived over the shop and this went on until the early part of the 20th century. <coughs> Another person who's buried there is George White who was the one of the partners at Howard and White which later became the Norwich Shoe Factory. He arrived in Norwich in 1846 as a young lad of 16. He later became a partner in the firm and he was responsible for building what became the largest shoe factory in the country on St George's Plain. The factory itself was built in four or five stages from about 1856. And if you go down there now and look at it, it's now the, what's it, the Jane, Jane Austen Academy? Yeah. 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 But if you look at it, stand outside the church and look at it, you can see the, the different stages. And the last stage was only completed in the 1930s. Of course, Norvik was sadly one of the major Norwich shoe factories that um, collapsed it. Went, went into administration in about 1981. The factory and the uh, rights to the names were sold off. One of the more interesting people at the Rosary is John Barker. He was a travelling showman. Norwich was the base for a number of travelling showmen, including people like the uh, Thurston family. But Barker in particular, he travelled around East Anglia and he had a, a show that was made up of a number of wagons that were pulled by a steam engine. And wherever he went, he would assemble the wagons to form the, the show and put tents at the back. So people went through the wagons into the tent. Does that, does that make sense? I haven't explained that very well, but I think you get the gist. Anyway, in the April of 1897, he was setting up his show on the old fairground behind Anglia, Anglia House. It's, it was the car park for a long, long time before they built the Castle Mall. And the fair used to go there, didn't it? They would, and so it sloped down from where the Archer building is to the back of Anglia House. He was sorting out his, his um, show, locking the wagons together, when unfortunately he got trapped between two of them, suffered horrendous injury, injuries, and by the time they got him to the Norfolk and Norwich, he was dead. The interesting thing about Barker, he, he was one of the few, one of the first people to introduce um, travelling film shows. He would buy in the odd film show. These were very, very short silent films of 60, 90 seconds. And he would, he would, and they would be things like um, royal visits, uh, trains leaving stations, things that people had probably seen. But to see them on the screen and to see a train on the screen coming towards you was quite something. The other thing he did, he bought, he, he asked for films to be made of local events, which was, have been as of much interest to people. Um, there's a part of the two of the people from the Thorpe Railway crash are also, or three of the people from the Thorpe Railway crash are buried at the Rosary. I won't go into a lot of detail about that because that's the <coughs> talk in November. So if you want to hear about that, you'll have to come on then. There are some, sight, some quite sad monuments of the Rosary. And one of the saddest is to a little boy, five and a half year old William Parr. He was the son of a tobacconist in Prince of Wales Road and just to show you that the river has always been a, a threat and, a, and uh, a great use to Norwich, he and his friends used to play by the river. And one day, he, in the summer of, I think it was 1902, he was playing by the river and they was, he and his friends were swinging on a rope attached to a barge when he slipped into the water. Panic seems to have sit, set in because people saw what had happened, but it took them so long to get him out. But by the time they got him out, he was dead. 
Another person there, and this is the only crook I know who's buried at the Rosary, is a chap called Isaac Cokes. When the Crown Bank went bust in 1870, and the Crown Bank is where Savills is on Agricultural Hall Plain. Yeah, you, it used to be it used to be the post office when I was a boy. Then it was Anglia TV, and now it's Savills. And I noticed recently it's up up the side again. But that was the Crown Bank. It was built as the Crown Bank in 1866, but it went bust in 1870 because one of the partners there, um, a chap called um, Harvey, had been speculating on the stock exchange with the bank's funds. So when the stock market dropped, he shot himself, and Isaac Coates was appointed to sort out the bankruptcy. It turned out that there was a massive deficit of about £600,000, and over the next 20 years, Coates tried to sort it out and make sure that the creditors received the money due to them. But there were concerns raised about what he was doing, and it subsequently turned out that he was hanging on to the money that he was supposed to be dispersing, and he was using land that was part of the bankruptcy to um, develop property. But I think the most telling thing about him is that when he went to London to act on behalf of the various creditors, say he went down there to act on behalf of four or five of them, he would charge each of them for the rail fare, each of them for the hotel accommodation, each of them for the meal. You get the picture, don't you? Um, eventually it came out. Somebody who worked at his office went to the bankruptcy trustees and said, look, you look, need to look at what Coates is doing. And eventually he was um, disbarred as a solicitor. And, uh, but he still seemed to live in some style. He lived in a large house right at the back of um, the Rosary Cemetery at the top of the hill there. Um, another feature of the Rosary is the number of military graves. There are at least 31 war graves um, headstones, and you'll all be familiar with those. They have the same, same format. Most of them are from the First World War, but there are also lots of graves that commemorate, for example, there's somebody there who fought in the glorious 1st of June naval battle of 1794, people from the Second World War, there's an American flyer, there's a Yugoslav army officer, and there are people from some of the foreign wars that we fought in, Afghanistan, um, where else? Oh, the Maori Wars in New Zealand. Oh, and a survivor of the charge of the Light Brigade. Today at the Rosary, it's still a functioning cemetery, but filling up, as I said earlier, but it's also a green space. And when you go there, you hopefully will hear a woodpecker at the right time of year. There are lots of small mammals there. There are over 30 different species of birds, the deer, there are foxes, and there are a lot of different trees. I think many of them were probably planted to enhance the rosary when it was fir <coughs> first lay laid out. And some of them are not native species, there's one or two from the Middle East. Um, if you don't know where the rosary is, it's at the junction with um, Yarmouth Road, so you go up Yarmouth Road from the station, when you get to Rosary Road, turn left and then first right, and there is, is a little signpost. You can park in there, it's open from dawn till dusk, and you can spend a pleasant afternoon walking around, looking at the headstones and looking at some of the notice boards. Right, that's all I've got to say at the about the Rosary, so I'll be quiet, and if you've got any questions, I'll do my best to answer them. I've got one, sorry. <laughs> always me. 
Um, what about grave robberies? Do we know anything about grave robbers or anything? Because obviously that's quite a lucrative business, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, did you miss some news about yes. the grave robbers? Oh, sorry. Yes, there was. Um, there were real fears about <coughs> grave robbing when the rotary was open, but I'm not aware there are any cases at, uh, at the rotary. There were a number of cases in in Norwich in the 1820s, and it carried on up till about 1832. There's a notorious case in Great Yarmouth where somebody seemed to be doing it on a wholesale basis. And there were gangs of grave robbers who would travel round. They would go into the churchyards as soon as they were aware of a burial, usually at night, take the body out, take the shroud off, and they would fold the body up and push, push it into a box so they could pack it off and send it by coach to London. <laughs> Thank you. Can I ask, is, um, is the rosary unique? Yeah. As in, as, I know it's unique to Norwich, but is it unique um, uh, site compared to other cities? Um, there are other places which have got um, dissenting burial <coughs> grounds, but it, it's, it's very different in that I think it was the first one that was, it's one of the, it was the first to be set up as a, a Christian non-denominational cemetery. Um, there were others about a bit late, 1820s, 1830s. And then of course you get the large London cemeteries like um, Highgate, uh, Brompton. Where are the others? Well, there's, there's lots of them, but they were set up as by co companies as commercial ventures. Right. So it just seems that he set it up because he was a bit pissed off with everyone. <laughs> Yes, I, I, I think, I think that no, I think that's right. I think he did. I think he was so annoyed about what had yeah. happened in Ipswich with the refusal to bury that child. Mm. He thought they were being deeply offensive in the way they mm. treated them, the, the parents of the child. That he, uh, he decided that it was something that coming because he was also he he was an avid correspondent. He gave lectures. He was a multi-talented man. Yeah. And although he'd retired as a minister, I think he had so much energy that he wanted to do other things. And of course, having this money fall into his lap was just a gift, wasn't it? That he could spend someone else's money on developing his hobby. That's why I wanted to know if it was unique, because that situation mm. was very, very but, unique. Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of them were set up by, by dissenting churches, where he, he was a, a one-man band. Um, I go into the Rose Street from Telegraph Lane yeah. entrance, and the last time I was in there, I noticed to the left they've got kind of small, just kind of plaques laid out. Mm -hmm. And do you know where, where I mean? I do. What? Yeah. But we're, my sister and I had a check. We go in there quite often because we've got about nine relatives up there, so we have a walk around. So it's a very nice place actually. Mm. To walk. I think they're for action. For what? For for the interment of ashes. Well, that's what we thought, mm. yes. Yeah, yeah they're little thought. plaques about this size, <coughs> aren't yeah. they? Yeah. Because as you get that side, there really isn't much left for use. No, because it slopes away down to the fence yes, there, doesn't it, does. it? Yeah. So what will happen then? Will it eventually become full and I think so, yeah. That'll be it? I think once it's full, it'll be closed, yeah. yeah. But there's still, there's still some space there, and there's a lot more space at Earlham, of course. Because what's happened with cemeteries, and I'm sure it's the case of the Rosary, is that people were allowed bought graves, and then the family moved away, the graves weren't used, and if the record keeping wasn't good, you end up with lots of spaces. 
although in the lower part of the rosary, when you walk round, even though there are no headstones, and you think, oh, there's a gap there, quite often it's because people could afford the grave, but they couldn't afford the headstone. Yeah. So there is probably somebody buried in that space. Yeah. But what also what they've done at the rosary, they've stopped, um, they're not, in, well, I can't say stop, but they're not encouraging you to have the full length of your body, so to speak, your grain. Yeah. They're just like you to have just the, the headstone, don't they, now, so, that's, yeah. so they can get their tractors up. Yeah, and in a way, it's because it, if you have the grave surround, the trouble with that is because now people, if they're buried in a wooden coffin and the coffin collapses and you've had a nice layout on top, all that collapses as well. Yeah. yeah unless somebody goes back and sort of backfills it and does yeah. it properly. You can see that in the upper part, can't you? How long do you have the plot for? The family-owned plot? I think that it used to be in perpetuity, but now I think it's something like 75 years. Yeah. I actually went to a funeral this morning yeah. for someone who um, the service wasn't at the rosary, but his wife was buried over buried there perhaps eight years ago, yeah. and so his uh, his coffin mm. And some years ago, could be 10, 15 years ago, I'm not sure. I went to a humanist service there. So you don't have to be Christian. No, no, no. Yeah. No, it's, it's, un, it's unconsecrated, so, and that makes it slightly unusual. Yeah. Um, but they still hold funerals in the chapel there. Yeah, this, that's yeah. one. Law's held in the chapel. I don't, um, I don't know if you know. With spiders and all sorts. <laughs> oh, it's in, it's, the chapel is in really good condition now, and I don't know if you noticed, but behind where they would place the coffin on the, um, the plinth, there's a little cross, but the cross is removable. Yeah. 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 I don't think. Yeah. Is that ever open in the chapel? It's open on Heritage Open Days in September, and we do tours. The Friends of the Rosary do tours. So, if you're interested. Um, well, our garden actually backs on. Oh, does it? We never. We lived there what, 55 years. We never so been in the chapel. Have you, have you got an email? Yeah. If you let me have your email afterwards, I'll send you one of our newsletters. Mm. And uh, add you to the list. So, because yeah, yeah. Yeah. in the summer we put on tours for people, and that includes a look round the, a look round the chapel, and also a look in the mausoleum. Because oh. the mausoleum. Oh. Oh. They haven't got an organ in there. The chapel, is there? No, 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 no. Just, uh, just, uh, just pews. Yeah. Any other questions? So it just looked after by the friends now. Well, the city council are responsible for managing it. They keep the paths clear and do the the cuts every so often and the friends we do well we do talks we do in the winter we do clearance you know brambles and sycamores but even though we've got 10 or 12 of us it's you with five acres it's quite hard work we do research we've um, put on a number <coughs> of events there as well it's really about just making people aware of it and hoping that they'll come along and enjoy it we were just saying to make a terrific film set we yes. have had people uh, okay. there, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I think, sorry, me again, but my son is 40, and he could have been about 8, 9, or whatever, uh, so 30-odd years ago. They had a major exhibition there of, of um, statuary. Yeah. Oh, yes. It was brilliant. Yeah. 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 I took these young lads who obviously <coughs> loved just running from the... the yeah, <laughs> I know what you mean. I'm not sure they were quite as interested in the art. Most of it's gone. There's one bit that's left, and it's a, a like a snake-like little path, oh, oh, made, made up of made up of mosaics. Yeah. 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 
they used to have a big horse in, in there, didn't they? Covered up in cloth, wasn't it? Oh, did they? Oh, that yeah. was before, probably Matt, before my time. Horse, yeah. I'd done in wire and I'd done up, bound up in cloth. Yeah. And that was there for long, I could see it every day. Yeah. When did they start to, because you've got yeah. what I call the very old part. The lower part. And then, then the next bit, when, when did they start to do that? Well, I. I think they bought it at the end of the 19th century, oh, right. but they didn't start uh, burying people there till the 1920s. Oh, right. And that's where that, that's where they, you can be buried in the lower part even now if you've got a family grave there or you've got a vault, because I'm sure some of the vaults have uh, spaces, but you obviously have to be a family member. I went up there once and a man had got, I think it might be the one you were talking about, he'd got a vault and he, that was from Sunday, and he was sitting outside, and he, he was quite happy to be to, he said, do you want to come and have a look inside? But he didn't, he just went down the steps, but just like a little sitting area, there was something. Was that the mausoleum? Yeah, yeah. It's very, it's very big. And yeah, yes, that that sounds like Bill Cooper, one part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't guy. worry, he's safe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> any any other questions? Yeah, I'd like to, um, right, then. So, uh, thanks again, Nick, okay, for thanks. coming. Thank you. And um, as, as I said, we've got another talk in November that Nick's going to do about the 1874 train crash. And then the month after that, in December, we have got the librarian from the prison coming, if you ever want <coughs> to hear about what she's got to say. That's quite interesting. She's just won an award recently about her work she's been doing for the people in the community there. So... And that's another thing coming up. I'd be really grateful, as I say, if you fill these in. And also, um, you were talking about Friends of the Cemetery Group, weren't you? Nick's also a friend of St William's Way Library. So if you'd like to help arrange talks or can suggest anything, other events and things that we can have here, you can always become a friend. You don't have to be a massively active member to be a friend of St William's Way Library. You can come along to meetings or you can come along and just support events like this or suggest events like this so um, I've got some forms the other side there but if you wouldn't mind filling one of those in but I think the main thing we need to do now is give you a round of applause Nick so thank you very much <laughs>